I'm sorry that I missed your party. I wish I had a better excuse, but I can't even lie, you got me. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys, boys, boys. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. Let's get ready to rumble. Welcome to Aya versus the Big Boys. Tonight's fight. American Honey. Hello and welcome. My name is Kevin Cookman, resident big boy and ringleader for the matchup of the century. As you very much know, we are struggling in a global pandemic, but it's getting a little bit better. Most of us working from home. The side effect of that? A lot more free time to catch up on media of all shapes and sizes. We all have movies we know we should have seen by now, but just haven't. Call it the canon. Call it the IMDb Top 250 or... Call them the big boys, the pinnacles of cinema, maybe the most explicitly patriarchal artistic medium of all time. It is time for a bro movie beatdown. Without any further ado, in today's episode and every episode, I am joined by the titular prize fighter herself, the top sales associate in the United States, Aya Lehman. Oh, Kevin, how's it? I don't have a quote from this movie. <laughs> understandable half of it is improv anyway so you're good uh my quote is uh turtle silence that's my quote poignant thank you <laughs> how you doing champ buddy what a week i'm so <laughs> tired yep. i'm done i'm done with it all buddy i'm done i'm at the end of my rope i hit the wall i hit the wall so hard i hit the wall with my full entire body like full oh like like full pancake full like looney Ooh. tunes like i'm bugs bunny flattened <laughs> to like a two-dimensional character that's where i'm at brother yikes you got boy i slammed into that wall hit it so hard burnt to a crisp out how are you yeah, I mean, I feel like every week is like, oh, God, what a fucking week. Am I right, guys? They're just getting progressively more uh, weaky as it goes along. Fair. And we're only we're only at the end of April, barely. Uh, so that's that's it, instilling a lot of hope in my little heart. <laughs> I like when people say, oh, like, we're only at the end of April because I'm always like, like, on a scale of what? Life keeps freaking chugging on, baby. <laughs> I don't know. At the scale of me getting a fucking Pfizer booster shot. Like, I, that's really how I'm going to be marking my years now. When do I get my booster shot for the killer virus that'll always stay with us? When am that's I going to get my little shot while I go to Target and, like, pick up gummy vitamins? <laughs> I fucking hope it gets that easy. It'd be so nice if it gets that easy. I think it will. That's what I, I hope so. I, like, can go to, like, Target and, like, pick up the new BTS album and be like, oh, you know, while I'm here, <laughs> I <laughs> should well get, get a little plug plug killer virus vaccine again. <laughs> this has been a, a shitty week for many reasons, many of which our audience is probably incredibly privy to. Um, but let's, let, let's, let's highlight something incredibly podcast-specific. Aya. Kevin. We've lost the Arclight. <laughs> Did, we've, it's dead. It's finito, zippity, zippo. I didn't know how Dirt. much that would break me. It fucking sucks. I did not expect that to break me the way that it did. You asked Merry Go Round contributors to write about 
the depart the, the death of the Arclay and the dome for a little tribute. I tried to write something and I uh cried every time I tried to write something. Yeah. <laughs> that was unexpected. I mean the dome is a very specific venue in Los Angeles where it's like, okay, you like movies? Cool. Oh, you love movies? Oh, have you ever been to the Arclight? Get your oh. happy meal ass over there. <laughs> <laughs> it is truly like the Pantheon location. It is like when you want to level up from just going to like the AMC and you're like, okay, what? Because also the Arclight was more than just like a regular theater experience. Like it, it was more than just like <laughs> cool people and button ups going and introduce the movie and make it so that it was the top quality. It it, it felt special, but it was also... It was like the primary place in Los Angeles to get independent titles. Yeah. Like, it was a main purveyor of the art house scene on an international scale to a very American scale. If you did well at the Arclight, then you basically could spread out and and uh, distribute the film more widely in the United States. And I, I mean, every single movie I've ever, I've ever been to that was only open in like three theaters in the country, the Arclight Hollywood- Arclight was one of them. Was one of them. And losing one of those theaters is in, it's like, I know people are just taking this on the chin is like, uh, oh God, I guess we lost a theater. But I think this is like way more cataclysmic we lost, to, the, like, to the distribution. Theater. It's the theater. And this is even before we talk about the fucking dome. Like, <laughs> um, I, how do you see the future going? Aya. Okay, well, the dome is a historical monument. It was, like, yeah. consecrated as a... That sounds religious. It was, like, declared a historical monument in the city of L.A. in, like, the 80s or 90s. So, like, we don't have to worry about the dome going away. We have to worry about the dome being privatized and turned into something else. So, I, I mean, like, not necessarily... I mean, it will always probably be a theater. It's just going to be, like, maybe something less accessible, which is, like, devastating. I think Netflix is going to buy it or, like... Ah, but damn, like the the dome is one thing. Like that you said, sucks. Like, it's arc light in general. Like there's so there are like several arc lights around this area, and like you said, like they truly care. They carry. They truly have everything. I well, like when Call Me by Your Name came out. When Portrait of a Lady on Fire came out. Like the only place you could see it in Los Angeles, these the movie town was the arc light. So that's gonna be that's gonna uh, fucking blow, dude. <laughs> I don't. Know. So I don't. I I don't like. I don't know. I just hope someone can, like, bail out Arclight. I don't know how. I don't know. I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, the nice part about, like, film Twitter geeks being only film Twitter geeks is that no one will ever give them vast amounts of money because based on every theory of who... Tarantino can save the uh, the Arclight. Oh, Ryan Johnson, save the dome. It's very clear no one understands how money works and, and no one understands... Uh, how how any of these finances move around? It was so funny. In someone, because Edgar Wright po- uh, posted on his Instagram, like that he wrote about the Arclight for the LA Times, yeah. and someone was like, "If only all these rich directors could step in." And he's like, "I think Idiots. he literally commented. He replied to the comment was like, "I think you greatly overestimate how much money I make." <laughs> like it was so simple. <laughs> it was that simple. He was like, "Bro, I'm not. I'm not making that number, dude." <laughs> Because I know, like in back rent, the Sherman Oaks location alone, I think was like at a at a hundred and forty four thousand, which is fucking insane. I would be surprised on at this point if Netflix were to claim the dome, because they they have the Egyptian that which yeah. is like just around the corner from their office. Ted Sarandos can literally see the dome from his office, 
So in that respect, that's not surprising because it's, I mean, they might as well be the Netflix theater. But I'm also trying to recognize, like, everyone's putting a lot of faith in King Kong versus Godzilla being, like, a huge box office earner. But they're also failing to put it on the curve, which is this is the first weekend that people are vaccinated and can go to movie theaters. Uh, and I'm not sure how long that enthusiasm exactly lasts. And I'm not sure how if Netflix necessarily wants to invest in more theaters, if they've been proven that they had a very successful 2020 where it was like, well, I mean, we kind of made a lot of money. Well, not really, because Netflix only functions on debt, spe- debt funding, but we'll leave that part out. I don't know. I just I don't know how viable theaters are for the idea of someone to be like, oh, someone will just buy that theater chain for that to be like a worthwhile investment. That's got to be like a multi-billion dollar. Because it's also prime real estate. Yeah. It's just like running a theater is not just, okay, I guess we'll get some prints in and show some movies. Man. <laughs> Kevin, what's your favorite Arclight memory? Oh, man, I've had a lot. I've I've seen some like formative shit uh, at the Arclight. My first time at the Dome was watching The Master when it came out in 70 millimeter uh, on wow. opening weekend. And I took my mom to see it. And she hated every second. <laughs> I was it. like, your mom? She hated it so much because well, I couldn't drive. And so right, my mom was yeah. my ride. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm going to see the movie with my mom. Thanks for taking the bullet, Ma. And I, I, I the, the film blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I had just seen. And, my, and on the car ride home, my mom was just fuming. It was incredible. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like... I saw it was a shitty movie, but like watching The Force Awakens in the dome on opening night in like the second row was insane. Uh, And I mean, like just most recently, my last time at the dome was watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, Mm -hmm. at a matinee next to like Riley Reed and a bunch of porn stars on like a Friday at like 10 a.m. It was fun. It was cool. Arclight had like it it brought everyone in. So you got all the crazy fucking Q&A's. It was uh, I know it was a next level like Disneyland type location. Uh, and it was like expensive, but you also, I never felt like I was being ripped off. Like I did feel like I was paying for the experience almost every time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm convinced that I, my parents and I saw the Phantom Menace at the Dome, but I can't remember. Oh my God. I know. Cause they took me to a very cool theater for that. And I was like, what, like seven? Like I was very small, but they took me to go see the Phantom Menace at a cool theater. And I remember being like, this theater's round. <laughs> So I think, <laughs> like I literally Googled, I was like, did Phantom Menace even play at the Dome? Because I know it closed like the next year for renovations and then reopened with like Shrek <laughs> or Shrek 2 or something. But like, so I think I saw Phantom Menace at the Dome when I was like a child. So that's my like first memory, I, th- I think. Wow. Uh, and of course I asked my parents and they were like, I don't know. <laughs> Me, of course, <laughs> like cataloging every movie I've ever seen. But no, like I saw Call Me By Your Name at the Dome I told you, we, I mentioned this last we, time, couldn't move, uh, crying so hard. <laughs> we met at the Dome. We saw we Suspiria at the, at the fucking oh, Dome. I forgot. <laughs> we saw fucking uh, Luca, Suspiria. We saw Suspiria. Oh, wow. Oh, what a story. That movie ripped. I'd never Jesus. met Kevin before, but he said, I have extra tickets to go see Suspiria tonight. And I was like, I want them. And I drove down late per usual. And he was like, well, we're going in. I'm going to bury your tickets under rocks. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I have photos of... My tickets to Suspiria buried under rocks from Kevin. And then we met and history was made. And this podcast Incredible. was birthed. Not then, yeah. but several Astounding. years later. 
fact. <laughs> Way after the fact. <laughs> yeah, GG's to the Arclight. Uh, if it comes back, because the thing is that apparently this closure announcement is some sort of like uh, leverage for some lease uh, negotiations, apparently. Uh, regardless, I feel like whatever form, it, if it were to come back, I highly doubt it will be in the form that we once knew it. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. I... I Maybe a miracle will happen and we'll have something equivalent to the Arclight, but uh, Alamo Drafthouse also filed for bankruptcy during the <gasps> pandemic. Oh, no. Uh, so we really got the Lemley uh, and we have Vidiots, which is opening up in Eagle Rock. What's that? that? Vidiots, it used to be in Santa Monica and it was just a video store. They closed down and then just in poor, poor people in late 2019, they announced they were opening their video store and a theater in Eagle Rock. And then 2020 happened. No. Yeah, that sucks. But oh, they're still on track. They're still announcing shit. Good. Um, but yeah, things are looking kind of weird. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's still A24 Brill here on Aya versus the big boys. That's right. In A24 miniseries all month long in the month of April. We are watching the films of A24, the glaring blind spots of one Aya Layman. Hey, now. <laughs> we are more than halfway past uh, our programming at this point. Aya, I gotta know, have these films given you a new understanding of the A24 identity? I think so. I've dropped so many First Reform references in the last two weeks now. I am You have. You really like boy. them. <laughs> I, love a- I love First Reformed, baby. That movie rips. Green Room, I have not made very many references to <laughs> fair very fair um yeah I, th- I, I, I think I, I think it's just reinforcing the ideas I already had about a24 and um validating a lot of my points that I've made in the past like these movies are vibe checks <laughs> more than more than really anything I feel like a lot of them glorify like very mundane things maybe that's just any indie studio because it's like well that's what indie films are they're just like normal real life or they're like weird, like hyper realistic things, or like hyper, you know, hyper. Yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I get it because, like, you know, you look at like the Safdie brothers shit, and their films are like on a like they're crime thrillers, but they're not like uh, state scoping. Like, it's not like oceans. It's like it's like aggressively normcore. <laughs> yeah, like instead of investing so much time and energy in the heist they want to invest so much time in the lenses that make everyone's pores look the most blown out exact they want like they are picking extras with the worst skin imaginable (laughs) they're flipping through a magazine looking at the before photos on every single like dermatologist in the in the tri-state area i think you're right there is a a focus on 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 normalcy but also in a sense like i i like that you brought up oceans because i feel like good time is definitely a movie about dudes who kept re-watching the oceans movies and yeah. kept thinking they could do that and, and kind of like uh like first reformed almost feels like like reverend toller kept watching taxi driver and it drove him in addition to the bible to do what he does yeah like there, there is a very uh tangible understanding of how the real world and also how like real world media affects each of these characters. I mean like even like like Bo Burnham's 8th grade is entirely about that. There's like seven 17 different films that are about how young people are influenced by the media they consume. 
I don't know, this was a huge player in, like, their kind of obsession with... Because I feel like it goes between, like, the mundane, which is, like, Lady Bird, and, like, reverse reformed, or it's just, like, very normal, like, middle, middle-ish, lower class, like, white people in, like, smaller cities. And then there's this one, which is just, like, bordering on poverty porn. <laughs> uh, this one being American, American Honey. Honey, directed by Andrea Arnold from 2016. Uh, all these films, uh, just one after another. 2016 is American Honey. Uh, 2016 is also Green Room. Huge and year. Bump two years and it's uh, First Reform. So everything very closely bunched up together. All of these cultural signposts just being unleashed in like machine gun ratatat fashion. What a 2016 movie this is too. Not to be like, wow, sign of the times, but like it truly was shocking to me to be like, oh, this came out then? This was what came out then? <laughs> this won the Can Jury Prize in that year? Well, let's break the seal. What did you think of Andrea Arnold's American Honey? What did you know about it going in? I knew very little. I did not do much research into this one. Um, yeah, it was exceptionally long. It was incredibly long. It was like mind-numbingly long. A tad long is what I'm getting at. <laughs> didn't You didn't value every minute of the two-hour, 42-minute runtime. No, and I'll be honest, for some scenes, I did bump it up to the 1.25 speed. Okay, okay. That's something you're not supposed to admit. That's something you're not supposed to be proud of. Well, uh, I'm not proud okay. of it, but like, Kevin, I simply cannot watch people wander through middle America for two hours and 40 minutes. I've wandered through middle America. Like, I, I have the experience. It's been done. I don't need to watch it again. So you've seen the American heartland. You've, I've seen the American heartland. You've seen heartland. these lands. I've seen these lands, sir. What brought you there? Um, I took a road trip with my mom, which was really fun <laughs> when I graduated college in 2016 when this movie came out. Um, oh. Yeah, I my uh, my grandma lived in Florida. So that doesn't necessarily count, but like a lot of these characters are from Florida and it feels very Floridian. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, this this is all very familiar to me, you know. I've also done the cross country road trip before. I was driving from uh, uh, L.A. to New Jersey. It's a very weird endpoint. <laughs> Not really a desired destination, but hey, that's how the cookie crumbles. Here's how it went. We had scheduled essentially, I think, 13 days to drive across America. We hated America so much that we cut it to nine days. Speed that up, baby. <laughs> we like Smokey and the Bandited our way through the United States, just driving like... 13 hour days because we were like because we were also camping the whole way through to save on lodging oh god <laughs> oh here's the thing the campgrounds are really nice like I'm they're sure not really campgrounds delightful. i'm not a camper <laughs> well n neither are we but like it's literally just a parking lot and then you have a little patch of like grass where you can pitch your tent and that's where we slept and they have like communal showers and they have, like i was getting a shower every day it was beautiful it was you great and it was only pitching a tent <laughs> Oh, come on. It's so easy. You have a couple friends. You make it a little activity. You make it a task. Like, oh, okay, you're pitching the tent today. You are You want to do good for your friends. It's a team effort. Fast. <laughs> All right. Well, it saved a lot of money. It was really I'm good. I'm sure like, that's, like a that's like a very useful way to make it across the country. Yeah, like, like having boys. to only lodge for like 35 bucks is great. And you just have a plot of land where you can just like hitch down and just rest for the... Oh, 
perfect. That was a real cool part of it. The actual United States part, a, a big bummer because there is a certain point where it is just Rust Belt, burnt rubber, shitty Chinese food, and uh, Applebee's. Like, that's it. I don't think I made it that far, frankly. Like, we stopped in Wyoming. And we, like, and that drive is gorgeous because, like, the closest you get to that is maybe, like, uh, Colorado. Like, there's, like, the the junction or something like that in Colorado where it was, like, okay, this is, like, trucker central. Like, you know, you see the scenes you see in this movie. But, like, otherwise we're driving through, like, Utah, which is beautiful. And, like, the lovely parts of Colorado, like, the mountains. And then when we were coming back, we were going to do that version where it was just, like, straight shoot, let's go home. And the guy was, like, no, 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 you have to go see the Grand Canyon. And it was uh, delightful. So oh, I did. Nice. I, so there are like I don't know. That's like the nice part about like the more Western states is that they're like also beautiful. <laughs> they're like <laughs> like yes, I'm in Arizona in the middle of nowhere, but then all of a sudden, oh, I'm like in the middle of nowhere in the Grand Canyon. But um, Idaho, there's a lot of nowhere in this country. <laughs> there's a lot of nowhere in like Arkansas. Do you like America? Like, I mean, did you enjoy <laughs> looking at this shit? Like, I, <laughs> would you do it again? Yeah, I think so. I like, I really like it. I like, but again, I didn't make it that as far as you did. Like, I didn't go to like the true, like, middle of the country. Like, I mean, Wyoming was as far as I got. And like, we went past a movie theater that only showed one movie. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, I I do it again. I, I don't know. I'm kind of drawn to like, you know, just pure nothingness. But like, that's so, so, I'm so coastal. Like, it's so annoying. It's such a coastal elite comment to be like, I just love the like, you know, the open land when I'm like from Los Angeles. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, San Francisco is so far away. <laughs> I feel like it's only a fun, safe thing to do if you are white passing. Because otherwise, you really are going through some like green room Nazi badland shit. Like, all the of the big, roads the big posters for like anti-abortion oh yeah like this country really hates other people and it's <laughs> something that you would think you could only feel by talking to other people no but i felt it in the geography it's in it's in the earth <laughs> it really fucking is you feel every bit of it it feels nasty and it just feels also like abandoned you know like you you do kind of understand the intense right-winger mentality of this country does not care for us, so we are going to create a militia. They're called like the flyover <laughs> states. They're literally only used to being flown over to get to somewhere better. The only time in my road trip that I really enjoyed the depravity of the United States was I think we were in a campground near Illinois. It was towards the end of our trip. It might have been Oklahoma. And we got to this campground where they were doing uh, <laughs> twin weekend. And so it was a campground filled with twins. <laughs> uh, and for some reason, when we were driving into the campground, in the middle of it was a giant hot air balloon. It was literally a Lynchian nightmare. It was, I, it, there were no explanations <laughs> so for many anything. So twins and a hot air balloon. <laughs> that sounds straight out of him. <laughs> And so what we decided to do that night to really ring in the celebration was in our, in our tent, uh, one of the guys that I was with, he had a, a, a pill bottle filled with painkillers from his, uh, what's the organ you get? His appendicitis. Mm-hmm. So he, was, he had pill, uh, pain pills from that. We crushed them up, snorted all of it, <laughs> did nothing 
but we were we were really hoping it would do something because it was just we were at the end of this road trip we just i get it i understand why this country has an opioid addiction (laughs) it's like it's one of those things where we drove through all of it and the only thing we wanted was narcotics I do remember being constantly concerned when people spoke to me, but they only spoke to me to ask me uh, how old I was. Um, And every time I told them I was 22 or I had just graduated, they said high school, right? And I was like, college. Um, And also I remember wearing brand new Adidas Superstars because they were very in at the time. (laughs) This old white man approached me and was like, he like pointed to me and was like, are those Adidas? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, are those like in right now? And I was like, yes. And he turned to his, he's wearing like a NASCAR t-shirt tucked into like jean shorts and his superstars. And he turns to his wife and he's like, see, I told you they were popular with the kids. (laughs) Okay. See, that is dope. I love that. That's great. It was adorable. I was like, oh my God. Like, I was like, wow, this country is amazing. (laughs) Greatest country in the world. Like just meeting really nice waiters. And I'm like, you will vote against my rights later today, but yes, you thank you for this moment. <laughs> I'm really glad that you brought that point up of voting against your rights eventually. Yeah. Because I feel like a lot of films where art directors are trying to create an empathetic portrait of the heartland, they never really interrogate that aspect of the heartland. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's always just, wow, look at the poetry and poverty. Uh, but there's never a furthering of, oh, and by the way, these people will burn a cross. I mean, that was like truly the insane part of this movie to me. Like, this movie was cool. I liked it. I thought it was good. The insane and so, like, it was incredibly white made because our lead character, Star, is the only person of color in the, for for at least 90% of that movie. You only see, like, other people of color when at the end when she ends up in when they end up in that town that is it seems to be like latino dominated and she's the only person of color in this whole entire movie and it's like never addressed once as if that wouldn't be like again like i know that that, like it's a very like america's like strangely polite like we talked about all of this this extensively on the bora episode we're like America's used to be (laughs) extremely polite, but will vote against your rights in a heartbeat privately. But like that, it just didn't feel realistic that there's this one girl (laughs) among all these white people and no one's going to say a word about it, make a racist comment, even if it's like kind of like, um, even if they're trying to like commodify her, like there's not going to say anything about it. It was very weird to me. That's something I've always thought about since I've seen the film. And I've never quite counted it as a negative because I also, there's something about how this group functions as a commune that I feel. I don't mean them. I don't mean them. I mean any person they meet on the road. (laughs) Like anyone. Sure, sure. Yeah, it is a weird part of this film that is never fully addressed, but it's also it never invites itself to it because none of the characters ever opened themselves up to seeing that. Because they're, they're very much guided by Shia LaBeouf's character, which, by the way, this is a film that stars Shia LaBeouf. We're going to be talking about Shia LaBeouf, just so everyone knows. If that's um, triggering, turn it off. He has a very power broker, nightcrawler type mentality. And it rubs off on basically everyone. You know, everyone is in this very, like, hard partying state of mind. But 
they make money and they know every trick of the trade of what they need to do when they are on call. They are shutting themselves so off from actual reality so that they can just sell these magazines. And there's something to it where like I, with how they think and how they are maneuvering and how they can only really ever be themselves when they're in motel parking lots, when they are just in hotel rooms with each other. I don't know if there's really much room for them to encounter or for uh, particularly um, for, for Star. I don't know if there's much room for Star to really encounter those environments if what we see is what she's seeing and what she's seeing is very much just the dollar and just the emotions. I just think that it would have come up with like one of the people that they were selling to, you know, or like one yeah. of the guys at like the oil rig. Like it to me, it just feels very like, colorblind casting tm to like give her this role and that's not to say that i don't think she she was like excellent and it's not to say that i don't think that she should have played this role i just think that it was like clearly directed produced and written by white people who were like let's just let's just go colorblind with this casting and throw her in there where it's like clearly she is different from every single other person in their group and like the people that they're meeting with are like definitely going to be they're like all white people you know yeah and like they're all listening to just rap music the entire time you have like a (laughs) bunch of the white kids just yelling the n-word yeah like Uh, you know that they would make and again i mean like we didn't see that like this movie is purely vibes like there's not a lot of time where they even like talk to each other but like there would have been some kind of like moments where she was like wait (laughs) you can't say that to me (laughs) but you're totally right i fully agree and i really like that because you can see that in her by the end of the movie where like at the beginning she's kind of like rough around the edges in that she's like scrappy and like you know like Shia LaBeouf makes these comments when they're selling and stuff and he's like oh you know like he's lying he's lying and she freaks out and is like how dare you say that all that stuff and it's like you can so you can see how she's like she's very herself like she's very much a person a very much an independent thinker and she's like extremely trying to protect herself like it's her against the world and she's like how fucking dare you say all these things but as the movie progresses she completely loses that edge because you're right she just is in this group and it is like, let's make the money. Let's go see the next place. And it's just, and she becomes dull, like, like numb to everything basically. And she's just, she's like silent by the end of the movie, except for when she's jerking that guy off, which is hilarious. I laughed out loud. (laughs) He was like, could you just not talk? Like since I'm paying for it, could you just be quiet? (laughs) That was so funny. Oh man. I loved that. A very tacit understanding of the exchange, which also, an oil rig worker getting anywhere near 100k salary? I, I don't know what metric that's from. That sounds quite... $1,000 for a handjob? In in what nation? Not even Who's making job. that money? Half a handjob. She doesn't even finish him. Oh my God. <laughs> he just looks at her pussy. <laughs> and he's like... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no, uh, I think that's fair, honestly. Because, like, I mean, government employees do make a lot of money, which is why, and it's, like, very secure jobs, which is why people want to be postal workers. Because oh, is that, like, is, that, is that a government gig? I thought it was privatized. I don't know, but if it's privatized, that definitely means they make even more money, probably. Really? Wow. It's a very okay. dangerous job. So they're, like, pay all this money, and then they'll probably die. <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. I guess I'm just accustomed to... Uh, this country wanting to kill you and keep you broke at the absolutely. same time. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, look, I, 
this film is is often regarded as as poverty porn uh, by its detractors. Uh, I feel like we should probably get into that conversation. But you know, I think an interesting avenue to get into that conversation is to talk about where this film premiered. It was at the Cannes Film Festival. We can imagine how that was like all we want, or we can talk to someone who was there. Whoa! <laughs> Folks, I don't, do I need to do an introduction? Genius friend of the pod, Rachel Wood is back. Thank God. Hello, hello. Let's go. Let's go. It's good to Back be from back. her Mulholland Drive episode. <laughs> uh, truly a star of the pod. A star of the pod. How have you been, Rach? I've been great. I've been great. Just sewing. Just, you know, in my little cave, sewing away. Rach, um, earlier in the podcast, we were discussing the Arclight Hollywood and just like the general loss of Arclight slash the dome. Devastating. So and sad. I wanted to share. Uh, my favorite memory of the Arclight is... One of the first times I feel I went to the, I think maybe the first time I went to the Arclight Hollywood, like once it was established outside of just being like the Cinerama Dome, we went to a midnight screening of Moonrise Kingdom when it first came out. It was our senior year of high school and uh, it was the first time I ever felt like a grown up and it was like one of the best nights of my entire life. Do you remember that? Yes, that was so fun. I did fall asleep during the movie, but it was midnight. It was late. It was an excuse. (laughs) But yes, yes, it was such a magical experience. That's so sweet that, that you felt like a grown up watching this like sweet kids movie. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> we like she like picked me up from a concert on Sunset Boulevard and drove me to the ArcLight Hollywood, and we went to the movie. And when we were out at like two a.m., it was raining, and we were like driving together on the two north, and I was oh, like, oh magical my God, <laughs> we're teenagers. Yes, we're out late. <laughs> we're having fun. We're amazing. doing our own thing. Yeah, crazy. Oh, God. This is Los Angeles. Yep. Lo- growing up in Los Angeles, baby. Chef's what kids, a treat. We love it. What a treat. <laughs> is that... Um, that's beautiful. I, don't, I know that's my favorite memory of the Arclight. I don't want to assume it's yours. Do you have a favorite memory of the Arclight? From specifically the dome? I mean, that it would be that. And then the only other memory I really have retained is when we saw Dunkirk together, which was the last movie I saw at the dome. Oh, wow. That I'm movie gonna ripped I'm going to be honest with you, dome. I don't... You texted me this, and I hate to say it on the podcast. I don't think I was there. <laughs> you were definitely 100% taught with you. Because I remember after the movie, I turned to you, and I was like, what do you think? And you're like, Rachel, don't ask me that. I just finished the movie. And I was Are like. Are you oh. sure? I, uh, um, it was I not know the first you saw time. It with, I know you saw it with Kelsey. <laughs> I definitely saw it with you because you ran into someone you knew. Aya, did you even see Dunkirk at the Dome? <laughs> I saw Dunkirk at the Dome with my parents, but I don't remember seeing it with Rachel. You know, it was not the first time you saw it. Oh, my God. Well, now I feel like I'm insane. Was it Kelsey? I have no idea. Now I have oh, no idea. no. I, but I'm so positive it was you. I'm okay. just trying to remember. I might have. I need to. I will look back in my records. I'm sure I have a memory. I just don't remember. I, good, good. I promise Aya and I are friends. I promise we're actually <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad that this favorite memory together at the dome is so compromised. (laughs) We saw we saw Call Me by Your Name together at the dome. Yeah. Did at the dome? Yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's what you're complaining it with. Because that was like at the end of 2017, which is the same year Dunkirk came out. 
and we saw it together and I and we saw someone I knew because I was oh. crying so hard I couldn't stand up and that guy came and said hi yes. to me and I was okay, like, yes, yes, like yes, fuck yes. that is the memory that is the memory that that's is the it. movie okay. it's all coming together maybe okay, I saw save, saved. okay it's all coming together okay. we're good we're safe we're I on just, the same page yeah I think the only thing I really remember is like I uh crying so hard and me like sitting there turning being like so what do you think and like, <laughs> smiling in my face. like that is the most obnoxious thing it wasn't even that packed but like it just so happened that we were sitting directly next to somebody else mm-hmm. and i remember him also sobbing <laughs> and yeah. feeling this like such a strong bond with this man because we're both like weeping and then this guy i knew from chapman was like I didn't even like, I think I had seen him before and was like, oh, I hope I don't talk to him. And then yeah. he like came up from behind us and was like, how you doing, Aya? As if yeah, I'm not yeah. bawling, my, like truly like, like weeping, weeping. A cherished memory of the dog. Yes, clearly cherished. Cherished so much. That we got there eventually. <laughs> we got there eventually. Yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Rach, we're doing a little bit of A24 Prill here on the pod. I'm curious, do you have a read on A24? Is A24 a brand name that you find yourself familiar with, liking, disliking? Oh, I love it. And, like, not to bring astrology into it, but as a Taurus, yes! I definitely vibe <laughs> okay. with a good aesthetic, right. especially, like... Like the way they brand themselves, I don't claim to be an A24 expert, but anytime I see a trailer, even if I see a trailer, I'm like, Meh. and then I see the A24, I'm like, mm, which is like so pathetic <laughs> because I'm such a sucker for that kind of shit. So, so I do love it. I'm going to say I, I do love it. I mean, it brings you in. It's nice to have like a studio house that is consistently making things that are pleasing to the eye and to the brain. Yes. Yeah, Absolutely. I will say, I think Rachel usually knows about A24 films before I do, though. Like, she's always like, have you seen the trailer for this movie? And I'm like, what on God's green earth is this movie? <laughs> like, when she lived here, she'd be like, do you want to go see this movie with me? And I'd be like, oh? <laughs> <laughs> and she'd be like, it's only playing at the Arclight Hollywood. We <laughs> must. Hell like, yeah, baby. Drag my butt down there. And it was always worth it because she has amazing taste. But I was always like... Like, Rachel is the reason I saw Tree of Life at all. <laughs> I was just about to bring that up. I was like, I had strayed her afar wow. a little bit. In her From opinion. the light. I love that movie. <laughs> Rachel <laughs> loves Tree of Life. <laughs> well, look, we got a Terry Malick lover. We got an A24 lover. What better Disneyland for you than the Cannes Film Festival? Yes. Which you went to. Yes, I did. I attended. And it was both equally the worst and best experience. Speak this on is it. like... A big boy wonderland. It, it, that <laughs> festival just pumps out movies for our podcast. Yes. Tell us all about it, please. Okay. Well, I went there as an intern with this. I totally forget the name of like the program, but it's like one of those like, and there are like a million interns. And the way they marketed it to us, they're like, you're going to stay in this beautiful five-star resort, blah, blah, blah. going to have all this access. And I was like, well, I guess it's like the amount of money I'm paying equals this resort package whatever fine you know i'm like majorly in debt moving on so we get there (laughs) and this like five-star resort is like this rundown desolate hotel that you you can tell like no one no one lives there until it's the Cannes film festival so like 
things weren't working, like whatever, which is fine. You know, I don't mind roughing it. But anyway, we're there for an internship. (laughs) And the first week is the internship. And like the production company I'm with, or it's a distribution company. I won't call them out. (laughs) They suck. And they were so rude. And like, they're like, Rachel, your job is just to like buzz people up, pour them coffee, like press the little play button on the remote so they can watch the trailers and then sit down and don't talk to anyone. And then they played this awful game, which wasn't a game to them, but I was like, this is, you guys are totally fucking with me. So it's like, they had each individual rooms, like the producers or whatever. And like when someone would come and oftentimes it was like people that they're like, this person is very important. You have to treat them like really well. And I'm like, whatever, you know? And so it's like, I'd ask for their business card and they're like, now bring this to like Kate's room or bring this to Brian's room. But they'd always switch rooms and they would get so <laughs> mad if I opened the door and it wasn't them. And so I'm like playing mental gymnastics trying to like, it's like, you know, that cup game where it's like the, the ball is under one yes. cup and they're all rotating. And I'm like, I feel like I'm playing this game right now. I'm trying to like watch where everyone is, is going. And then I'd have to like walk in and then like slip their card on the table. It was so dramatic and so ridiculous. And they like <laughs> never bothered to learn my name. They would always ask me to like, buy them lunch. And I'm in France and I don't speak the language. So I'm running around France trying to order lunch, trying to ask if they can do a to-go order. And it was always a disaster. Okay, I'm spending too much time on this company because it was a disaster. I hated it so much. Assholes. Oh my God. Right? Okay. And so the director of the internship program knew that I was like not having a good time and was like, was like, oh, I'll see what I can do and like place you somewhere else. And I'm like, it's just a week, whatever, you know? And like the receptionist for the company was like i have two tickets to the um what is it captain fantastic after party do you want them Mm. and i was like sure so i got these like two tickets and then it's like once people found out i had these tickets like the interns like they swarmed me they're like Rachel, Rachel, you have to take me and i'm like this is nuts you know and so it's like (laughs) like walking around the Cannes film festival people are wearing these like perfectly curated outfits just in the hopes that someone's going to take their picture. Like it is this weird dystopia walking around the festival because like people, not even famous people, people are just like walking around and like paparazzi are just swarming everyone, just taking pictures of anyone. And I did not bring any cute clothes. And so I'm like hoofing it to my internship. <laughs> people look like a mess in my business casual. And then it's like, Oh, I have to go to this Captain Fantastic after party. Hopefully it's fun. And so I had to go to Zara to buy an outfit. I hope you edit most of this out because this is probably so boring. <laughs> I had to go. It's going to be like. Um, because the best part of the story is that I have the outfit now. <laughs> I had to go to Zara to buy this outfit because it's like they would not. Okay. The way it worked especially for like the other clubs is like you stood in line outside and there was a bouncer who would then let like four people go up to the door where there was another bouncer who would like check you up and down to approve of what you're wearing. And it's like, if women weren't wearing heels, you got kicked to the street. It was ridiculous. So I had to get heels. A rule Kristen Stewart famously argued against because yes. she was not welcome without her, with because she would also want to wear pants as well. And I believe women yeah. couldn't wear pants. You have to wear dress. You have to look like some hot Barbie with your dress and your heels. And you know, I do have the same clout as Kristen Stewart, but they still did not hear me <laughs> when I rejected at the door. But it was it was ridiculous, you know. So and you were rejected? 
Oh yeah, until he bought, until he went and bought heels, and then wore these, until like, you got the Zara outfit, stupid heels. Yeah, which is fine. But then, like the in some of the parties that I went to, it's like it's like all the women were thirty and under, and all the men were fifty and up. You know, and it was like that Hot, kind of vibe. Good. Love that Very dynamic. French. <laughs> yes, yes, and so. It was just weird. And like, there's one, I went with some of the other interns, like the, the friends I made, we went to this one party and it was so boring. No one, there was no music. No one was dancing. It was like, we're all standing around, but there was like Katy Perry and Orlando Bloom sitting on a bench, talking to each other. People were like watching them. And then my intern friends were like, let's just stand here and be be near them. And I'm like, what? No, wait, you're just going to stand here all night. Oh my God, I'm miserable. And there was like, a tent on like because this is all on the beach and there's like a tent next door that was like jamming and they're having the best music best time and so i was like okay we're gonna wait till the security guards turn around and we're gonna make a bolt for it to this other tent and there it's like the security is ridiculous so i make it in but my friends are slow so we got caught and we got dragged out of this club it was it was amazing <laughs> like I got just every out. like humiliating thing that could happen <laughs> at this top tier nouveau riche film festival you endured twice over yeah it was it was ridiculous and notice how i have not even brought up films yet because i was i was so naive <laughs> going into the Cannes film festival thinking it was going to be a community of film lovers getting to watch movies and share and like movies and it was not it's all about money and celebrity and who who knows who and oh my god oh and for the red carpet okay this blew my mind you have okay to get a ticket to the red carpet if you aren't like given them you know you wait outside the theater in your like black tie outfit because you have to be ready to like get on the red carpet asap so you're in your like gown or your suit or whatever and you have this like scrawled note on a piece of paper that's like begging like please if you have extra tickets please give it to me and so you see the swarm of people in like their ball gowns and there's like these desperate signs like going up to the people as they're exiting the last screening being like please please do you have an extra ticket and it's insane and you'll see these like men like pull tickets out of their coat pocket and kind of like throw it at people and they it's like oh it is nuts and i was like what is happening i mean that's how i got the ticket to see personal shopper by mm. begging for it <laughs> you were a beggar as well I, I did it once and i got the ticket and i was like well wow. worth it i mean it was not worth it uh, it's insane but i did see kristen stewart <laughs> so worth it huge <laughs> Yo, i got to watch way to go i got to be in the same theater as kristen stewart as we're both watching her on the largest screen i've ever been in front of watching her masturbate i mean <laughs> could you ask for a better Bravo. experience <laughs> so, that's all you needed it was worth it i mean that was the best that was truly the highlight and then like the second week when the internship was over i didn't talk to a single person i made a point not to like not gonna network because clearly i have not pursued a career in film because i do not belong in the film industry but i did talk to a single person and i saw like five movies a day and it was amazing that's where i saw the handmaiden and i think Ooh. i Oh, that's where, also where I saw Neon Demon, which is not so hard, which is is currently and will probably forever be my least favorite film ever to exist ever. Like the one of those movies that you could just love to hate. You know, there's incredible so, takes. Yes, there's so many Horrible. movies that it's like they're bad and I like didn't care less and I forget about it. But the Neon Demon will sit with me forever because of how much I hate it. Rachel, I am absolutely dying to know. 
in this environment, what is it like to sit down and watch two hours and 42 minutes of American poverty in Andrea Arnold's American Honey? Surrounded by gowns and tuxedos. What do you think of the movie? But really, what is that fucking cognitive dissonance like? Yes, it was insane. And I had that I had that epiphany when I was sitting in the theater watching it in in the moment, being like, I can't believe I'm surrounded by all this like wealth and power. And I'm like, do they even give a shit about this movie or about like what this story is about, about the characters, the people behind it? Like it truly is very dissonant because I just I was like what is even the point? Is the point just to see if this movie's going to be good and to sell it? Or are we here to like actually learn and empathize with characters? Does anyone here like movies is what I want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Any cinephiles in the yeah. house? <laughs> Everyone's like swapping their business card. And I'm like, anyone on Letterboxd? And they're like, please leave. <laughs> <laughs> please leave. <laughs> They push the eject button on just your seat. (laughs) So even if you're in a room with people who seem to hate movies, Mm -hmm. does that affect how you are watching this movie, American Honey? Do you like it? Did you like it when you watched it? I loved it when I watched it. And in terms of like the attitude of the theater I was in, the one good thing, the one thing I'll say about being at the Cannes Film Festival that I really did enjoy is I can be like a real pain in the ass when it comes to being like a companion at the movie theater with me where I'm like I don't want to hear you opening your snacks I don't want to hear you cough or sneeze or make a single noise at all unless unless you are allowed to laugh or cry you know granted the scene but I don't want I don't want you to get up even when I'm (laughs) even like when I'm at my house I'm like I don't we're not pausing it unless you are going to explode you have to pee so badly we are not pausing it and just like I, I do I, not wow. ask her a single question oh, during the movie. Do not even try to talk to me. I, no, the no. movie is on. Talk to me afterwards. You know, this is a sacred space. This is she the has one perfect theater etiquette. Yeah, perfect. thank you. Thank Holy you so much. Shit. I love it. And that's like at the Cannes Film Festival, people were people were quiet. No one no one said a thing. No one got up and left. It was great. Do you like American Honey? I I do. I do. I loved it. I really did love it when I first saw it. And when I rewatched it in preparation for the pod, I still liked it. I didn't, I didn't love it like I loved it when I first saw it. Um, but I, I yeah, I'm gonna say I still like it. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I'm curious. <laughs> my my setting myself up. <laughs> no, I liked it. I thought it was really good. I thought it was really engaging, which was shocking for a film that was two hours and 40 minutes long mm-hmm. um i found it very engaging and i didn't feel like i wanted to stop watching it at any point where i was like we'll get to the point i thought she was great i thought ms riley was oh, exceptional yeah i thought it was it was beautifully shot uh beautiful just beautiful cinematography like wow gorgeous 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 i i really was taken by the film when i first saw it in 2016 uh, this is also uh, important to note, uh, when this film comes out, it's uh, pre-Trump election. So this is still Obama's America when this comes out. Uh, <laughs> and it's like a very, it, it is a very different feel when you are in that sort of liberal placidity versus now here we are five years later and it feels like everyone I know has been radicalized. <laughs> uh, to which end? Mostly left. <laughs> But, you know, there's, <laughs> but, uh, you know, watching it now, I, 
I I'm interested to to hear what you mean by you like it less now because I I see what you mean because the more time passes, I feel like the more things get messy in my head about this movie. Because on one hand, on one hand, and I think this is where the poverty porn angle comes in. I do think that if if not Andrea Arnold getting the resources together to make movies about these people in the United States, then who else? You know, and also. If not Andrea Arnold, who is going on road trips across America, who is doing her research, who is actively searching for non-actors to fill out this cast. She's the one that I kind of trust with this material on a work basis more than like any studio grabbed or or picked director to ever make like a hillbilly elegy. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like we've seen what happens when Ron Howard and Netflix make this shit off of a best-selling book. Like we have the, the, the the one-to-one. I much rather this, I think this is a really delicate portrait. On the other hand, I can't get past that visual of the fact that like, Andrea Arnold is like, she went to AFI for grad school. She's worked her whole life in the film industry. She's not exactly working class. She's very much coming at these people for her entire career. This is not her first film to focus on the working class when she was making films in Britain. The film that put her on the map was Fish Tank, which came out in 2009, which is just all about uh, white people in a, in a, in a British uh, tenement building essentially uh and that movie is uh, incredibly miserable it has michael fassbender playing like a very predatory uh girlfriend to the daughter's mother it's an intense movie and it's it's a lot uh but it's very similar to this film and why i think at the end of the day this film also kind of gets my my good graces this is the best jukebox musical of all time i think (laughs) there is something so incredible about how this film functions as a musical, and I can't get over it. And so everything that I have in my head about, I don't know, if is this movie portraying a gaze on, on, on this class of Americans? Is this doing it? It kind of goes out the window when I see the form and the love and the sympathy and the empathy at hand, which is just so much more than any of the films that copy this movie, which I think this movie inf- influences a whole style in and of itself. I think this film is still like the 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 top of the top because it it, it kind of has a beating heart, whereas all the other films are kind of just going for the beautiful aspect of it. The the reason I I probably don't connect with it as much is just because I feel like I've I've aged out of the storyline a little bit. Like when I when the reason I connect with it so much is like because it's the whole coming of age story and everything, and stars, uh, her personality and the way she reacts to things. When I was younger. What like five years ago when I was so much younger, I just <laughs> feel like I could relate to her a lot more. And now it's five years later. Am I getting those dates right? Can I do math? Um, yeah, it's been five years. <laughs> I think you're, yeah, you're good. You're good. I just feel like um, it, it's not like hitting me emotionally the way it did the first time I watched it. But I really do like your point about like Andrew Arnold having this empathetic. Uh, approach to the film because I think what I really liked about it what didn't feel it did not feel exploitative to me you know because uh, even though this is not her background this is not her really her community it didn't try to like give them a false like like she's not trying to say they're pathetic you know but they're also not given this like artificial uh, importance you know injected into them um, totally 
I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but it just felt, it felt like, like even, even the way they are dressed and the way they look, they, these are people that I could meet any day, I feel. You could easily see these people in a Kmart. I've seen these people in a Kmart. Yes, yeah. A thousand percent. I think that's the really interesting part about this film and how it plays into how we usually watch films. Where, like, the first time I saw this, I don't know, how did everyone else feel on their first viewing of American Honey? Were you guys on edge? Were you kind of tense? I was not. And my second viewing, I was like, there are some very deeply uncomfortable scenes and there's so much, like, threat of danger in some of these scenes that I did not pick up. I think I had this, like, I don't know. I was just paying attention to, like, the emotional part of the, I don't know, the romance. <laughs> um, and so it wasn't until the second viewing that I was like, there's a lot of anxiety throughout this film. And I definitely was on the edge of my seat for some of this. Like, things could have gone so much further than they ended up going in this movie. I googled the end of Minari because I was like, I can't, I can't not know. Like, I need to be prepared or else I will break down. Um, but like, Kevin warned me, not even warned me. Kevin texted me and was like, just so you're prepared going in. Anything that you think is that's going to happen that's like very bad, it's not going to happen. And I was like, great. And I felt so much better. Did I have to Google the end of this? Yes, I, I did. But I did not <laughs> feel that same anxiety. Yeah, I mean, like it's it plants a Chekhov's gun that it never uses. You know, like it puts Star in situations with other men that are always coded as, okay, this is violent. Uh, and, and yet nothing ever comes of it. And, and I think it's really interesting in how this plays with our expectations of film and how, you know, watching film, it's like, it's almost a very patronizing experience where on one hand, it is like a storyteller's goal to get it to, to connect to a character. But it's also, we feel protective of a character. You know, we feel that as a viewer, we have a, a role in the character's agency. And I think American Honey is really interesting in how it never veers into that danger and how it always kind of, it keeps rem- reminding us, oh, just watch the movie. Star can protect herself. Star can handle herself. Star does not need your help. She does not need your pity. And she does not need your moral support. She knows what she's doing. It may not look like she knows what she's doing because she's very young, but she's learning very quickly. And I I do, I do, find that, that strong willingness in, in all of Andrea Arnold's characters very... Uh, endearing makes it sound like I'm, I'm patronizing it. But I, I find it really... It, it's one of her most skilled aspects as a filmmaker in that it's always a super intense shit, but I wouldn't ever qualify her movies as as bummers because I always kind of understand how her characters are going to interact and how they're ultimately going to do the smart thing because often the smart thing is just the human thing. <laughs> well, I thought it was really interesting with this film, especially because like... Um you know, we're constantly on edge, especially as like a woman watching it. You're just like, (laughs) I'm like, you know, digging my nails into my hands uh, because I'm so nervous for her. But like, I, this movie truly is like a, I don't, this is so corny, but it feels like a love letter to the road and like to middle America and like the people you meet there because like all of these men still treat her better than the most insidious character in this, which is the Shia LaBeouf character. And like, you're so nervous for her when she's with these random dudes, but they're all just kind of like, whatever (laughs) at the end of the day they're like hanging out with a pretty girl and he's like the toxic the most toxic one and so it's very i mean that's like as much as i agree with you kevin where i'm like yeah like she knows how to handle herself it is still like the most unsettling part is that that 
toxicity is coming from, yeah <laughs> calls coming from inside that the freaking <laughs> man baby <laughs> a thousand, yeah you're you're a thousand percent right and there's you know it, it it's only gotten more unsettling with time now that we oh, know truly who uh shia labeouf is um you know there's you know an obvious reason to be really unnerved by him but i think also looking back at the films he made um it is incredibly disturbing that you know, American Honey is all non-professional actors. Only him and Riley Keough are, are the true, like, only people that have been in other films. Also, one of the people in the van, they were in a Softy Brothers film, uh, the star of it. Wow. Uh, this is not the first film where he chooses to be the lone professional actor in scenes or in films with newbies, with unknowns. And it's that power dynamic that he always sets himself up with that acquired him this sort of cult following as like, oh, he's a real actor. Um, I don't know if we have to talk too much about Shia LaBeouf, but did anyone have any impressions of him uh, five years later now watching him in this film as a predatory figure, now as a certain certified predatory human being? The thing I notice about certain predatory individuals, like with him, he is so good at being charming and it reads really clearly in this movie. And I think... <laughs> It's just, I, to me, it's just very interesting to see someone like that be able to have that charm and be able to, and I know I'm also speaking for the character as well, who's able to um, bring people in with that charm about him. And it's just, and it, it like, when I first saw this movie years ago, I was like, I, I think I, I read it as like sweet. And now, you know, it just feels uh more manipulative, obviously, but it's also just kind of, uh, I don't know, worrisome, you know, and, but I see that and it's like, I know, that, I know for me personally, that's something I definitely connect with initially uh, that I like fall into that kind of trap when I'm first getting to know people, you know, that kind of charm that people can use so, so easily is definitely something that I find fascinating and scary. <laughs> Yeah, his character in this reminded me a lot of his character in Honey Boy, which is really dark because that's like his own father. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was, you're totally right, Rach. It's very unsettling to see how charming he is and how, how not only is he very charming, he knows that he's good at using his charm to manipulate. Yeah, that's it. It's the (laughs) self-awareness that's scary. It's very scary. He unfortunately looked very hot in this movie, which was tough for me. Oh, no. <laughs> it, was no. it was that rat tail. The baby. rat tail and the eyebrow piercing. There's something I, I do truly love when actors like look really ugly. Like I'm thinking Nick Cage in adaptation. You know, like there's something about <laughs> a very boring ugly in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when, when they just look so when they just look bad. I love it. I thought he could have looked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God. Apparently, he got 12 tattoos on the set of this film. What? Wow. Yeah, loves doing that to his body. Just like, I think he purposely scarred himself to go on that uh, World War II tank movie, Fury. Oh, yeah. Uh, And then also, he got a real giant Mexican chess piece for the David Ayer movie that came out last year. That tattoo's real. What? I fucking weirdo piece of shit. That is, I've seen him um, with that tattoo. Insane. Walking around Pasadena, California, baby, where he lives. Oh no, of course. <laughs> the fucking rebellious art boy lives in Pasadena. Oh my God. Always. Of course. <laughs> Rachel, you spoke about um, 
the clothing in this film, which I thought was interesting because you are a professional clothier, clothier, if you will. <laughs> what <laughs> was your you take on the costuming of American Honey? Was it distracting or did you feel like it was very appropriate? Like, speak on it. I think very appropriate. Uh, one question I have is why are they always wearing swimsuits and no one is swimming? Is this just part of the culture? <laughs> <laughs> that to me felt so appropriate like I feel like whenever I've been in I was speaking on this earlier about how like whenever I've been in Florida like, mm-hmm. it's so like you'll go to like like Kmart and people are wearing swimsuits under their clothing just in case maybe you know? yeah it was very Liz Lemon when she like runs out of her underwear yes but none of them were wearing a one piece <laughs> but no. I did I, I loved the clothing like I I love when when movies when the costume design has like intentionally very uh, normal clothes you know because it 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 turns oh this is going to sound so stupid but it turns that boring teacher into part of this like part of the narrative and it's like it brings that character to life and as someone who loves clothes you know it's like all these all these clothes in the world that just get thrown away like that t-shirt for like couple months got to be in a movie and that's good for it and i'm so happy for it but i also just like i don't know whenever i see a confederate flag in a movie i'm i'm just like why uh, i don't know like was that necessary what did, what did that really add to the story i maybe it's fine whatever when i saw her in her little confederate flag bathing suit i was like i was okay. actually it was like perfect segue because <laughs> i was going to talk about how i feel like that that bathing suit that year was like almost became iconic like i feel like everyone Ew. talked about riley keogh in that confederate flag bathing suit because it was just like so like it just feels so it was such a sinister moment where she's like i control you and she's wearing this confederate yeah. bathing suit. also it totally just dawned on me that like i think the main character i don't know but like her father in this movie is white right it's unclear if those if that the kid the mom the, the mom of the kids is her mom like no uh, okay that's not her mom her mom's dead but in her house there's a picture of her mom on the refrigerator and it's like a very white blonde woman oh wait i i don't think that's her father though that's supposed to be her dad yeah those are her little siblings those are her siblings what those are random kids that she takes care of because then at the remember she takes them to their mom yeah i thought they were like half siblings oh maybe well, the way I took it is that I thought that was just a guy that she shacked up with and, like, the no. kids No, that's were... her dad. That's her dad. That's her, yeah. that's her dad. That's Wait, why you... it's, like, extra creepy. Yeah. Wait, how do you know that? Wikipedia, baby. <laughs> I mean, oh, he, says, like, okay. he says, like, come dance with your dad or daddy. Yeah, I think and he's... I, she, he says daddy, and I thought maybe it was just the kid's dad, but I think it's, I think it's supposed to be her dad. Yeah. And maybe what their dad. The I yeah, that's that's part of the that's I definitely am convinced that that's supposed to be her dad. Also, this just speaks to Andrea Arnold not feeling the need to overexplain things, which I I appreciate. But I appreciate yeah. that too. But then it but then it seems like she's maybe supposed to be white, but she's not. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I what the way I took it was like that's her dad. And that lady is the mom of the of her the half siblings, but not yeah. her mom. But not her mom. Okay. Her mom died. Yes. Although that's because you're you're saying her mom died because that's what she told those three men, right? I yes. thought I took that to be you know how she was like, 
uh, during the sales pitch, whatever, she's like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to make up some sad story about my mom dying. I took that as her doing that about her, like making up her sales pitch. The reason I believe that her mom did pass is because of the scene where she sees the meth mom and buys the kids groceries because she's like, well, that was my mom. And she was like forced to go live with her abusive creep rapist dad. That scene at the honky tonk was just so dark where the mom is like doing the line dance and refusing to take her children. Yes. That was so dark. And those poor kids. Those poor kids. So sad. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's always a bit of like uh, child abandonment in uh, Andrea Arnold movies. Just like, hey, just try and survive. Like that's always something that she does to like really vulnerable kids in every movie so far i mean it's very clear that that's like a huge thing for her because like throughout the entire movie she is responding to seeing children in these scenarios and it was like oh man it was really grim what did we all think about the chicken in the beginning (laughs) that chicken haunts me that was so disturbing it just gets worse and worse like you you see this raw chicken and then you see it the juices spilling out and then the little kid stabbing it with a fork and it just was so rancid i loved it for some reason the way he said like there's no eggs in this chicken really upset me. i was like oh god <laughs> she, I was like dear god the dietary logistics of this movie have always really disturbed me because they're all packed in that van as well and they're just subsisting on a diet of like God knows what, soda, beer, like vodka. Weed. And they're they're going on like 15-hour days. The most upsetting part to me is how excited they get to see fast food, where I'm like, oh, so you haven't even been eating fast food levels. Like, you've been eating truly 7-Eleven heated up hot dogs. Yeah, like these kids have been eating like fucking leftover pizza slices and hot pickles. Oh, my God. Imagine what that van smells like. That was the entire movie I was thinking about yeah. how I was just thinking the entire movie that they're like, oh, yeah, we're like doing these sales pitches and they're like dressed for success. And I'm like, you were smoking weed two minutes ago. Yes. I laughed when, when Riley was like dressed for success. I was like, no one has gotten the message. I mean, she shows up in a bathing suit. Yeah. Except for Jake wearing his little suit outfit. Yeah. yeah. Riley Keough's character is sort of like she. Everything with her is like my least favorite part of the movie, because uh, I just don't. Th- that that's when the movie becomes like a movie. It's less Andrea Arnold getting a camera and just doing this really guerrilla style semi doc semi narrative shit with all the kids on the bus. When we get with her, it's like okay, let's stop the good parts and let's get to something that moves the plot <laughs> along. Where they want to make a feud with Star. It, it, yeah, it's where just she's like, a, like jealous of jake but then she's also like yeah jake does this with everybody and you're like what? <laughs> yeah and it's just the weird inconsistency of her running this incredibly tight ship but everyone's smoking weed and drinking the entire time like the entire idea of people crossing state lines with that much booze and that much weed and her running the operation the way she does it just it doesn't add up and it, we just spend too much time with her where i'm like let's like the two hour, 40 minute runtime of this, let's just cut, we, you can cut out 20 minutes that's just eliminating the Scientologist Presley. <laughs> I thought she was good and I love her. <laughs> really? 
That's hilarious. I mean, I get, I totally get what you mean. Like, you're totally correct. Like those, like that character makes no sense whatsoever. Like she truly exists simply to drive the plot along. But like, you're right. Like they're like, okay, you have to sign this. You have to like, like appear at her door at this hour. You have to give her this. You have to memorize all this. And then it just goes completely out the window. She's like, she, every week she, they fight. (laughs) They're fist fighting. I, it didn't make, like they should have been hiding all of this from her if that was going to be like the situation. Yeah. I think it's just about power. You know, I don't think, I think she has those rules just to flaunt them. I don't think she actually cares about them. Especially because he's like, she's only a hard ass when she doesn't know you and then it's fine. Yeah, but I, like it's one of those things where like if you're going to like go out of your way and like write a character in this movie that's all about like cat- capturing a natural moment, like I I understand like she I, I think it's a really good read that it is a flaunting of power, but then for the ultimate uh like for it to ultimately just be like oh but she ultimately doesn't care, then just don't write the character at that point. <laughs> if the arc of the character is that by the end they just don't care, then fuck it. That's how you know you write it out. That's in a, a good film point. that's like that's scene point. by scene, new conflicts, and they're like, but here's this other conflict. You're like, we don't need it. We don't need it. I just was like gritting my teeth through what could be a very disastrous scene, and it wasn't. I I noticed something in this movie that I've only ever seen in movies and TikToks, and it's I don't know what I would call it, but it's like working class excess. I'm thinking really just of that scene. And there's a couple in American Honey where it's someone's birthday and someone gets a supermarket cake and they put fireworks through it. And the fireworks start shooting off. And then all these kids that are only making 20% of the wages that they make on these magazines, they just dump the cake on the floor. That was shocking. Does that happen in real life? Like, I, I feel like this profound waste on that, on like the nonstop liquor as well. Like, I, it's like a weird, like, I don't know if these kids would really be spending all of their cash on just that. Like, I, but maybe they're just so trapped in the bus system that that's just all they see value in buying. I don't, is this just a very particular set of circumstances or is this just something that I see in terms of like, I feel like the only other times I see this is like when uh, like in like an apartment, some kid dumps like seven gallons of milk on their mom for a prank. <laughs> I don't, that's hilarious. For a TikTok I challenge. I would love to see that. Um, I totally buy <laughs> I totally buy them spending all their money on like stupid pointless stuff that they're not like because the way that I read it it's like they they're only living in the moment they have like no concept about like what the future is going to be like for them and like because obviously this is not going to be the career they're going to do when they're in their middle age um, but it like everything about like leaving the cake on the ground they are all in my opinion, it's like they're they're all acting like children with like there's no concept of like consequence or thinking about thinking about anything other than like what it makes you feel like in that moment. These kids are somewhere between uh, like in their early 20s, late teens. I'm not quite sure, but it's like I mean, they're still like Sasha and Pagan are still like comparing stickers. You know, there's something so childlike about things and like when when star and jake are first flirting they're like sticking their tongues out at each other like there's this like childish immaturity that it's just like they they're together because they get to just be like they get to have their childhood now with each other yeah and like yeah the entire time they're basically too distracted by this commune setting that they've created for themselves where it's like 
it is grassroots fight in the pit lord of the flies capitalism <laughs> like that's just they're too busy looking at the rule book to really focus on like oh this money could go towards me leaving this situation eventually but really the the end goal for most of them is that when jake gets pissed at them and leaves them at the gas station with no shoes no food no water do you guys see yourself in ever being in like a, a personality mindset of adjusting well to this lifestyle absolutely not i was experiencing pure anxiety every second that they were in that van in fear that this could ever happen to me i know that sounds that sounds so condescending and so privileged and i'm really sorry but i was <laughs> i was experiencing pure terror at the concept of ever having to be around young people again <laughs> i'm so glad I'm no like it wasn't even like I could I could survive on no money like I have terrible I could eat the McDonald's for every single meal I'd be so happy but like I hate teenagers so much and I do not belong around them that it, it I was experiencing primal fear at the concept of having to sit in a car with teenagers I don't know I totally can see my because I I feel like I have the personality type where I love uh communal situations i just really love being around people and being i can see myself being in that kind of environment where i've like we've all like emotionally grafted onto each other because we are in this like little bubble and just spending like way too much time together and where it feels like every little tiny thing is just taken to a like is just heightened to an astronomical level like every little itty bitty thing any like emotional a tiff you could have with someone turns into something enormous and i i just remember being in situations similar to that maybe not exactly like that and how it becomes your whole world you know and like that feeling of like you really just lose any conception about like what's happening outside of that group and i think for me personally i think i have the personality that would get sucked into that very easily <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was an interesting part of this film was that she like didn't though. Mm -hmm. Like she truly didn't took every opportunity to not be around them. Like she would hop into the back of the car to see the oil rig. She would go off with other people. She'd go off with Jake even. And then like when they're doing actual bonding activities, she is not involved at all and like doesn't care to be involved in like their little drama. And she only gives what's her name? Pagan the gift because she's mad at Jake. <laughs> like that's it. I thought that was, the, I, for me, that was what really stood out where I was like, oh, like the part where Riley Keough's like, you think you're different or you think you're special. And I was like, yes, she does. Like, yep. she truly does think that she is, the, she has main character syndrome. And like, God bless her, she should. But I thought that was an interesting choice for the movie. It's a means to an end. And I feel like every time she puts herself in scenarios where she separates from the group, it's almost like she, I think she realizes that she could initiate herself but then she also, I mean, like, she's never out of that mindset in the in the that she was in in the Kmart parking lot, where it's like, what's the next thing I can do? You know, going off with those cowboys, it's like, I know I can make money off them. I know what I can do. Going to the oil fields, she knows exactly how she can rip this guy off of some cash. Like, it, it's one of those things where it's not that she's learning from Jake, but she is now around someone who has acted like how she has her entire life. And now it's, you know, when when you have that energy of like, oh, there's someone else doing it, there's almost that competitive edge of like, okay, now I got to set my game up because I know I'm not the only one doing it. I'm just so curious about like the role of presence in this movie, you know, like how presence is such a big deal. And that, like 
And every time Jake gives, like, Jake is, like, her focus for most of this movie, I feel. And every time he gives her a present, she gives it away. You know, it's it's always out of, like, spite. You know, they're very emotional people. And then he gives her a turtle. Like, that was so strange. And then she's like, I'm going to release this into the water and swim. And I just am so curious about what, why, like, why are presents such you know and then like she's jealous of pagan for getting the stickers because she's like i am special and i want the good presents and i don't know i'm just curious about what you guys think about presents it truly does remind me of like capitalism (laughs) and like working under like (laughs) and like even though she's trying to like actively leave like the system tm she's still in the system because like i mean you know like jobs giving you like a christmas gift or a christmas bonus as opposed to like actually giving you like affordable health care and you know actually paying you a proper salary that's what it felt like to me where it was like you're still in the system of like even though your gift is like a lighter that says your name on it you're still being given these like merit-based presents to keep you going and to keep you in the system yeah i wonder because the way i think i read it now that i'm thinking about it, it's like they they spend every second together and they have such a regulated life. Like they can't give each other time necessarily. They can't like, and they, it, we don't really get to hear anyone outside of the, maybe the main characters really talk about themselves. It feels so, I don't know. It's like, they don't really, they can't give each other that like, I don't know, words of affirmation or whatever. And they they don't really have time uh, outside of this, like, 24 seven camp life that they lead. And it seems like, like physical gifts are like the only thing they can really demonstrate uh, interest or something above the fact that they spent every single second with each other, that this is like the one thing that separates you from other people. Yeah. Well, I think to build off of that too, is that they also don't have time for themselves Mm -hmm. because they, you know, they're in that weird middle ground of like, they're not really getting to know each other, but they're also not getting any second to be in their own space. And so I think like with with Star giving away all of her gifts, they don't have a room. Like they all share beds. It's like four to a room, possibly six. There might be people on the floor. Um, So really the only decorations you have, the only sense of identity you have are what is on your person. So it's almost when someone gives you a gift, it's not just, I, you know, I think it, it plays into like the the bonus aspect of this, of like keeping people encouraged to stay on the team and keep working hard. But it's also, I think, and it plays entirely into Jake's character of like, I'm going to imprint an identity onto you. If you have a turtle, you're going to be the turtle girl. If you have stickers, you're this, the one with, you know, your, bind, your, your folder, your binder is really the only personal belonging that you have. No one has bags, really. So like, you know, the, it's that and it's clothing. Those are the only forms of personal expression. And if 50% of your personal expression is determined by another person, then it's just a power play. I felt my my like last real take on the movie <laughs> is that like I'm stuck now on the Riley Keo thing and how like useless that plot line is that character is because like to me what is the most the biggest draw to this movie is that there's no ending like there's clearly a beginning where she joins the crew but there's no ending like it's not like she's done with them it's not like she leaves like it's just it's just like a cycle that keeps on going and it's like why was there that weird conflict why was there that character at all it's really like shocking to me in a way where like it, it's the antithesis of what this film is going for of like giving you something that's just kind of like dropping you into a scenario 
And then they're like, oh, but we have this little conflict. We have this little uh, antagonist. And it's like, I don't need that. Like, why? Why? Yeah. It's it's a very blunt conflict in a movie that is so impressive in how it presents every scene as a possible conflict. Yeah. And you're trying to see if it's going to detonate or not. And then every time we're with Riley Keough, it is just, okay, we know what we're getting out of this. It's like, okay, great. More like aggression. <laughs> A lot of like just fun animals. The truck driver has the a Yorkie. puppy in his, in, in his that back. That was cute. Yeah, it's the Yorkie. Good for him. He wants. He loves boats, but he's never seen the ocean. That's just, oh, that's that a dream. America. Almost, that scene almost made me cry. That scene was truly. You're right though. Like T. That was like that scene was America. TM, where you think this man's going to be bad to her, but he's actually just very sweet. He has a family. He gave his daughter away. He has a little, he's made a little home of his truck. He loves the boss, baby. They sing Bruce Springsteen together. And then at the end, he's like, yeah, I'll buy your magazines. <laughs> like, that was the purest, like, you're yeah. right. Like, that's the moment where she's like, America. <laughs> Just just don't ask him about his beliefs and you're nope. good. <laughs> Thank you. I don't want to know who he's voting for. <laughs> uh, how would everyone here grade the playlist on the van? What are we thinking of the van playlist? It's not the music I listen to. <laughs> 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 but yeah. I don't... Y'all not a fan of mid-2010s trap? What The one thing that I, al- I think that I always notice, and I have noticed like with growing up with some of the people that i've known it's like always white kids listening to music by black artists to seem cool as like a com- a commodity you know but then when it really comes down to it and when they're having their special little emotional moments they're listening to lady antebellum <laughs> that's when they're like okay, they're like all right we seem cool okay they're like okay no one's around bump lady antebellum <laughs> That is, yeah, zero emotional attachment to any uh, of black culture. It's really what they, what really accesses them is American Honey. Yeah, yeah. Arnold really lets the bass rip as well, like in a way that no other films do. They always want to dial down the low end, but this one, it's just like, no, they're listening to these songs for the bass. So <laughs> you are going to feel the bass. I thought it was the song that played over like the love scene was in the car was wild that oh Ma- mazzy star yeah that's cr- that's like cr- that was crazy to me and i loved it and it was way more that felt very andrea arnold like a white woman <laughs> like born in the 60s but i loved that scene i thought that was such a fun i don't know i think it, i thought the diversity of choices were interesting like the song that plays at the end that was like maybe a, a religious song oh that's a i forgot his name i think his name is rory he was kind of an up-and-coming sort of like chance the rapper adjacent dude in like 2017 2016 i mean the one thing about andrea arnold is that like licensing music is always her bread and butter um like her, her film fish tank i think does this a lot better than american honey in terms of what the songs are doing uh where it's always like look at it's looking at a uh a working class of people basically indulge in these songs that only understand the riches uh, of this of the country that they're in. Or in, in Fish Tank's case, it's even more dystopic because it's all American music that they're listening to. Mid-2010s trap, like all the Migos, uh, the Ray Shremard, uh, the I Love McConan. These are all, all, this is like a time when rap, we talked about this last week uh, when we talked about Green Room. Um, in terms of like rap feeling like punk, Mid-2010s, that is really when rap felt like punk. Like, that is when, like, in 2015, you would have a Migo show in Albany where six dudes got stabbed and two got robbed. <laughs> like, that was the... Like, if you're going to a Migo show, 
you might get fucked up. You don't want to go. They are dangerous places. And then, of course, Migos have played the Super Bowl two years ago and they're played in like Fortnite and everything. So very weird how that happened. But it is like this very like this. The trap in that stage was almost like a lawless type of like uh, genre reinvention. It was like anything can go. So it kind of makes sense that these kids are really attaching themselves to it. It's all of these genre bending weirdos essentially attaching themselves to sort of like Atlanta where there are the most of the music is coming out of. But in a lot of cases, and how rap has usually gone, but even more so in the mid-2010s, it's how weirdo white kids latched onto it. Because it was all of a sudden, like, all of these rappers, they weren't really into Notorious B.I.G. or Tupac. They were into Nirvana. <laughs> they were into Chingy. They were into a bunch of, like, w- weird influences that when mashed together, you get this super, like, stadium rock, but also, like, grimy, like, I ain't got no type shit. I love when rap shows up in movies. I think that's really what it comes down to. These songs do not get shine. They're always seen as like a, but that's not real music. Let's just play the Bruce, you know, let's play the Lady Antebellum. (laughs) No one else even bothers to license these tracks unless it's like really shitty, like Fast and Furious doing like a rock rap song or whatever. (laughs) It's... It's just, it, I don't know. This I, this is one of the few times in film history in, in the 2010s where it actually felt like, oh, these are real people listening to real music. And I appreciate that very much. And they, they, they play songs over again. Like, it becomes yeah, like yeah. the way that teenagers are like, play it again, play it again. It's like an inside joke almost. And they have that moment where they're like repeating the lines in the song together as if it's like a daily, like, uh, routine for them, which is very cute. Like a little ritual. Well, folks, we've been talking about nothing but deep, hot tracks. Really brings to mind some real hot hotties. It is that time of the pod. Let's talk about it. Who was the hottest of the flick in Andrea Arnold's 2016 American Honey? For me, I will begin. I'll just dive in. I'll take take the shot. For me, it was clear. It was clear from the top. She defines... Hot Girl Summer. It was Riley Keough. <laughs> wow. Better bikini. <laughs> wow. Every time she's like, Riley Keough and her strange cowlick on her head, like her bizarre part. I, well, I mean, I saw Zola. She's incredible in it. I want to watch her do anything. I want to watch her do everything. She is a vision. She, when asked... How she feels about having Elvis Presley as a grandfather and Michael Jackson as a stepfather. She said, I don't think about it very much. I love her. (laughs) I hate that she's a Scientologist, but I think that she is so radiant and she gives such an incredible dirtbag performance. And yeah, it's it's hard for her because she's like too hot to be a dirtbag, but like I don't care and I accept it. But I definitely picked her as, and even the first time I watched it, I was like, the first, she came on screen and I was like, she's hot you know because it's like there's something about really toxic aggressive women that i find <laughs> deeply appealing so alluring Rach, we are two peas in a pod it's, it's that level of like insanity that i'm like ooh, she's so hot it's like oh my god and of course of course my number one has to be qt i mean i have to go with the butch of the van so <laughs> I mean, come on. She was great. Wow. I loved QT. Yeah, when I first saw her, that's I was incredible. Like, she's so cute. And then now, like, anytime, like, 
I just I literally just wait until the last scene when she's singing American Honey to start and I'm like oh, hmm, that was jealous so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> when she like looks back at her a little bit oh my god my heart was bursting and her little smile oh my gosh I love the butches that are like little teddy bears <laughs> I'm really hoping this is her name I don't know <laughs> I don't know anyone's name in this film <laughs> I think one of the people on the bus is named Kat- is named Katniss Oh, oh, and she's it's the played one with, like the dark, dark, the, the crazy hair. Yeah, with the blonde, and then the it, black in, in the back, in the blonde. Yeah. Oh, she and she's always so like in the cute. shorts. She was so cute. She is so cute. Yeah. Also, looks like she can like stab me and know exactly where to reach in to get my guts and yeah. like. Rah, just do them out. <laughs> yeah, but still, like always, be smiling while she's doing exactly. It. You know, need be i'll sit in a chair i'll eat I'll, I'll go seven style i'll eat seven tubs of spaghetti get my gut real gorge just so you can fucking mortal combat me in the stomach because i know i know deep in her heart deep in her eyes in that fucking lip piercing that she has i know that she would want to kill me and i would do it i would be the <laughs> one she kills she always turned a, like she was always pulling a little outfit which i liked and she had her little purse she was yes. I liked that. she yeah. was she was dressed for success mm-hmm. she understood the assignment she did i hope she's well i hope she's well <laughs> i yeah i should see what's up I, i'll send her a dm i'll see what's up <laughs> i would love to see these girlies instagrams i feel like they're gonna just be, be pure chaos yes oh yes God. absolutely rachel if we wanted to find you on the internet if you want people to find you on the internet where can we where can we support you where can we find you you could uh follow me on instagram at rachel wood spelled w-o-u-l-d um if you are expecting content look somewhere else because i rarely post and i probably but her posts are so good if you want to yeah if you want to see my sewing adventure if you're curious what uh sewing is like (laughs) you hop on over also i just started a new uh, little garden in a community garden so i'll probably be posting that if you want to see some fruits and veggies What a freaking delight. What a gorgeous, uh, eternally a gorgeous guest to have on the pod. Always brings just, brings the fun. What else can I say? She brings the fun. I I never want to pick favorites, but uh, Rachel's a favorite. (laughs) We love Rachel. Uh, Kevin, what else you got for us before we say our farewells? Well, I have a demented fun fact about American Honey, uh, a film that I feels like I really love and you, I think, like. Liked it. Yeah, I liked it. Okay. Four stars. Uh, Sasha Lane and Shia LaBeouf dated. Thanks for listening to Aya versus the Big Boys, <laughs> America Round Magazine podcast. A twenty four pro keeps bringing surprises. Well, Kevin. I'll see you under that silver lake, huh? Oh, no. Don't you fuck. Just... Thanks for listening to Ivers the Big Boys God on the Mary Girl Magazine Podcast Network. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. But we need the listeners to subscribe to the podcast. Um, please follow Mary Girl Magazine at MGR Magazine on all your little social medias. Uh, please follow me, Aya L-H-M-N, on Twitter and Instagram. Kevin, Kevin Cookman, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Patreon.com slash MGRM. Diamond the Jukebox. I think it's going to be 
most Fridays. I'm not sure yet. And um, that's it. But baby, that's all I freaking got for you. If you got any hate mail or love mail, you can always go to Aya versus the big boys at gmail.com to voice your praise or grievances. Oh, grievances would be fun. <laughs> and as always, I ain't, I ain't got no type. Bad, Bad bitches, bitches is the, is the only, thing only thing that I like. That I like. Don't be mad, don't be mad at me, no, 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 darling, I can stop it, even if I want it. Don't be mad, don't be mad at me, no, 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 I miss what you were saying, I was miles away. Don't be mad, don't be mad, now I got a choice. I was busy thinking about boys, boys, boys. I was busy dreaming about boys, boys.